1: Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lucas Rappel, and today I'll be speaking with Pratik Chakrabarti. Pratik is the NEH Colin Chair in History and Medicine at the University of Houston in Texas, and he recently published Inscriptions of Nature, Geology and the Naturalization of Antiquity with Johns Hopkins University Press. This important new book offers a timely challenge to the widespread assumption that deep time refers to nature's own temporality, that it constitutes a time beyond the historical imagination. In turn, this implies that deep history is beyond politics. In contrast, inscriptions of nature aims to denaturalize deep time by emphasizing the politics of prehistory and showing how deep time itself was a human invention with profound social, cultural, and economic consequences. It does so by examining how and why engineers, naturalists, military officers, and colonial bureaucrats working for the British East India Company began digging the earth in South Asia like never before. By excavating canals, sewers, and mines, they revealed a lost world of ancient monuments, cultures, and civilizations, as well as prehistoric fossils of spectacular and sometimes quite strange-looking beasts. At precisely the same time, Orientalist scholars also began digging into ancient texts and delving into the lives and bodies of indigenous populations, closely examining their myths, legends, and histories. Pratik Chakrabarty argues that both pursuits were deeply entwined with one another, which led to a naturalization of the earth and its ancient inhabitants. Please pardon the pun, but this is a truly groundbreaking book, upending any number of conventional assumptions and taken-for-granted ideas about the deep past. From the banks of the Yamuna River and the peaks of the Himalaya Mountains to the forests of central India, Pratik's wonderful book examines how Hindu antiquarianism, sacred geography, and ideas about aboriginality intersected with the colonial history of South Asia. Readers will also learn about the 19th century origins of Gondwana land, the deep history of giant tortoises, and the discovery of ancient canals. This this book is just brimming with new insights and provocative interpretations. An absolute pleasure to read. Welcome Pratik to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks, Lucas.
0: Thanks for inviting me.
1: So I wanted to start with a bit of a biographical question. So looking at your website as I was preparing to do this interview, I got the sense that your, most of your previous work was in history of medicine and history of the laboratory sciences, whereas this new book, Inscriptions of Nature, is really about the history of the earth sciences, the sciences of deep time. So I wanted to ask how you changed tack, how you made the transition from one kind of topic to this very different kind of topic.
0: Thanks, Lucas. That's an interesting question um, because I have always considered myself a historian of science. so my training and my phd and my first book which is western science in modern india metropolitan methods uh, colonial practices actually was on history of science uh, from the 18th century orientalism how science evolved natural history evolved from very orientalist study of indian um, past so you know the links between what is indian past in cultural terms and what is indian past in natural forms the plants the that coexistence was a key part of my first book. And then um, for different career reasons, I wrote three books on history of medicine. But uh, I remember uh, making the journey between history of science and medicine. And uh, um, I felt that, you know, when you go into history of medicine, the reading list is very different. Um, And I read, so I I had read Thomas Kuhn before I'd read akernet Ack- So, you know, that adjustment. So this book is actually uh, going back to that original um, interest that I had. And I wanted to investigate some of the key uh, logics or, re- or reasons that I had explored in my PhD and my first book, which is about this idea of the natural and the historical, which I think is a key part of that this book itself, of how the two coexist and the complex relationship between natural and historical, which is the key history of natural history. Um, so that is where I started to go back to. Um, and that's how this project developed. It's an uh, its an interest that I had about understanding the relationship between the natural and the historical.
1: So it sounds like it's more of a kind of return to an initial interest so much than a departure. Yeah yeah interesting. And I wanted to ask you also if if you wanted to talk a little bit about the writing process, so how you went about doing the research for this project and writing the book, and how your ideas changed and developed and evolved as you were doing the research and then writing up the project.
0: thanks, Lucas. thanks Thank you for this question because i th- I think um, we don't uh, speak about it enough as as authors, as students about. The difficulties of writing. I'm talking about difficulties because it's mostly difficulties that I face in writing processes. Uh, the joys are few, uh, and that, but mostly it's difficulties. Uh, I, I think one of the uh, one of the key points that I started. So I started. I kind of knew what I was going to work on when I started writing this, which is the history of geology and orientalism and the idea of the Indian deep past, essentially. So. I knew the kind of archive that I have to look into, the Orientalist, uh, the Asiatic Society literature, the vast archives of the British Library about Indian uh, Orientalism and other natural history research, uh, surveys. But the problem that comes is what do you do with the material? And I started, uh, because the historiography of history of geology is an art sciences, it's, it's quite strong. And I started to write a very conventional history of geology. Uh, I mean, almost an Indian version of deep history and earth history. And then I realized it's not working. And almost in the middle of that writing process, there was a crisis. And where do I go from that? And I'm not going into the the intellectual part of that process, but I uh, decided to write it all over again. So I wrote, so one of the, one of the practices I had, had done for this book, probably to save time, the very brass tacks of writing, is I started writing almost as I was researching, very early. Um, that came with experience, uh, but that also was almost to save time that, you know, that you were, I, there was a point that when I was actually writing in the archives. So I wouldn't even take primary notes. Um, because I thought I knew what I was writing, I was writing the chapter in the archive. If you know what I mean, I had a laptop and the sources around me and I was actually writing the chapter. So I had to scrap that entire process and go back and read and rethink and reread and read much more widely um, than I was doing into histories of art sciences, art histories, deep time in Australia, South Africa. So completely open up the possibilities. And that's when I had to rewrite a lot of my material. I would say that I'm, I was still right in starting to write quite early because I wouldn't reach that crisis when I did if I had not started to write that early. And the rewriting was necessary, but the first draft was as crucial as that. So that's my, that was my experience. That, and, and for, a, for a, almost till the last year of writing, I didn't know what I was writing on. And it was just writing in the uncertain. It was just grappling. Um, and I remember, sorry, I'm just going on, I, uh, but I remember one of my, the advices my PhD supervisor gave, which was key in that moment, is writing is an act of thinking. And as you write, you think. Otherwise, you're, my ideas are woolly in my head. You know, if you're sitting in the archives and collecting materials, you have a, a wide range of ideas, but you don't know how clear those are till you start writing. So. It was through writing, I processed that uncertainty.
1: I mean, I definitely sympathize with the idea that writing is both enormously generative, right? that writing and thinking are not distinct enterprises, but rather that they are in fact part of the same enterprise, that writing and thinking go hand in hand. But also that it's such a painful process, unfortunately, that often it's just a process full of anxiety, full of uncertainty just as you were saying you don't know where you're going and it's a process of grappling with that unknown and trying to figure that out and that's i think why writing is so important because what writing is is trying to give shape trying to make the uncertainty take some kind of shape
0: yeah i call it giving shape to the beast it's uh, it's uh, the beast uh, appears only if i start writing um and and the beast is the book that i'm trying to write or the idea that i'm trying to formulate and it is a painful process. No, I, I don't know, probably there are, but I don't know too many people who have enjoyed the writing of a book entirely. There are hard, painful uh, times in writing. So,
1: I often console myself with the thought that if writing comes to you easily, it might be the case that you're not writing very well. <laughs> that to, that it that the pain of writing is maybe an indication that there's something right about what you're doing, that you're really struggling with it, that you're really, that you're engaging in the process in a kind of a a genuine way that produces new insights that, you know, learning is difficult. Learning is fraught with risk. Anytime you learn something new, you don't know where you will end up. And so I think that pain is a, it can, I console myself with the thought that the pain is an indication that I'm doing something right.
0: It's the grit in the oyster it's it's that process it it, there's no escape from it and i know the next book i write will be equally painful but that's where we are
1: yeah unfortunately it's the profession we've fortunately maybe or unfortunately the profession we've chosen so i wanted to get back to the book itself and the arguments that you make in the book and i wanted to start with the end of the book which is the conclusion which i found i have to say it's it was when reading the conclusion that you're that the kind of ambition and the scope of your argument really became clear to me. I really began to understand. I thought I understood what you were doing before I read the conclusion, but it's once I read the conclusion that I really started to see so much more, so many more facets, so many more elements to what I now think you are up to in this really amazing, important book. And so I wanted to ask you about something that, in the conclusion you describe a widespread assumption that deep deep time kind of the time of prehistory refers to nature's own temporality. I'm quoting here, that deep time refers to, quote, nature's own temporality, a time beyond the historical imagination, which in turn implies that there's a sense in which people often assume deep history might be beyond politics, that there's something especially natural about deep deep history. And in contrast, in your book, I take you to be arguing, really, that deep time is profoundly political. Perhaps it's the most prophetic, political kind of, it's a, it's a temporality in which the political stakes could not possibly be higher. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about the political stakes of deep time and to just tell our listeners a little bit more about why you think that a period in earth history, the vast majority of which human beings did not even exist, how could this period be among the most political, the most politically fraught periods of earth history?
0: Thanks, Lucas. Um, it's, it's a very um, core question that I dab, grapple with. So I have to explore uh, our, uh, the answer in, in different directions, but I'll come back to your question, core question. So I think the best place I can start um, answering this question is to start thinking about what is the role of a historian, particularly when a historian is writing the history of geology. Um, that question is important because geology itself is a historical discipline. It studies the past, like many other sciences. Uh, geology studies the past. So, what does what does a historian do? Does he or she follow the geological pattern um, of how the Earth history or the history of the Earth was studied and was unearthed? Um, so that trajectory is uh, almost what I would call geology light, just for the sake of uh, the understanding. So does a historian follow the geological trajectory of the past and narrates how things happened, how the geological art history was uh, was uh, studied? Or does a historian challenge the frames within which that art history came to exist and came to understand? And, That uh, was a core part or challenging the frame was a core part of what I wanted to do in the book. And I do that through this idea of the naturalization of the past. What I mean by the naturalization of the past is that that is the fundamental element of geological thinking that, and that started from the 17th century or 18th century gradually within the emergence of natural history, that nature has its own ways of evolving and it's not governed by the divine mind It's not governed by any celestial design. It has its own idea of time and own idea of of evolving through past. That idea of nature's own temporality became much more entrenched in the 19th century with the um, emergence of geohistory. The idea that that temporality is much deeper than human history, much deeper than religious texts. So nature's de- time became much, m- much deeper. So the idea of deep time is one of the core elements of this idea of, uh, of naturalization, that nature is the dominant factor and nature's own, se- own time drives this entire history of the earth. That I would say is not only the core f- feature of history, but also in a way, Western epistemology. And I have felt that historians of science have not distanced themselves or challenged this frame. They have followed the naturalism of nature histories, that they have studied, they have almost told us how this earth became historical, how nature became historical. That, and if you read the broad spectrums of history of geology, history of science, is where the study is located that the, how the history of earth became Natural. Now, the problem with that framework is the moment you say something is natural, it appears apolitical. And the reason behind this, and, and I've given the example of a political event in Indian history, which is, uh, I think it's the first chapter. See, I'm forgetting, forgetting the book in a way. I wrote it almost three years back now. So um, it's the first chapter, which is the discovery of, of you know, the canal that became a, a river and which is from a historical to a natural. So a canal is a historical object created by human beings. A river is a natural object created by nature. And the debate on one hand is how what was imagined to be a medieval canal system was discovered with the use of geohistory to be a river system. Now that river then becomes the famed Hindu river called Saraswati. Now, the moment that becomes a natural river, which is then so these we, apparently these river appeared in Hindu texts, in old Indological texts, which were evolving at the same time that the geological past of India was evolving. So they borrowed together. So so Hinduism became natural to H- in India, and the river became the proof of that naturalism of hinduism so hindus are natural beings of the earth and the river as much as the river is a natural object of the earth so that naturalism the moment you take anything to nature it becomes a political so the core part of my argument is it is in this naturalism of time that the past appears a political and it is important so i'm not so the two, so it is important to understand the political processes by which, by which times or uh, temporality appears naturalized and the, 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 the there is another factor to that is is for example uh, I give the example of uh, of Gondwana land um uh, uh, is that gondwana in you know the the history of uh, of the discovery of Gondwana swamps of deep time doesn't refer to the coal mines that were developed and discovered in the 19th century in the colonial regions of South Africa, Australia, and India, from which the idea of the deep time evolves. The Glossopteris the, the fossil was found in the coal mines of India, Central India, and Australia. And, but deep time almost distances itself from the colonialism of Gondwana land and writes a, a political history. So, On the one hand, that is the politics, so that the framing of deep time is political and we have to understand and recognize, otherwise, how do you write a colonial history of of the art history without recognizing the the 19th century political movements towards art history? The other is, the resultant of that is, if you read standard books of deep history, and I'm not going to name any here, the evolve of prehistoric humans, the migration of humans, it almost appears they happily migrated. There were no conflicts. There were no racism. There was no, conf- there was no conflict for food. It is all very really within a natural frame that people migrated, settled. So that even so, what happens even in the depiction of prehistoric humans, as we write, there is no political content because the moment humans appear natural objects, there is no politics to be involved. So that was the reason why it's not a question of whether art has politics; it is a question of whether how we see the art has politics in it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, also the, the idea of antiquity, right? That to assert the antiquity and therefore the natural qualities of something is to give it a kind of legitimacy. By by denying the political stakes of prehistory, we kind of legitimize the deep past. And, and there's a sort of sense that things of great antiquity have greater legitimacy than things that of more recent political origin. And
0: the moment you can land them onto a natural frame that had more legitimacy. So that's
1: since you mentioned uh, Gondwana land, Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a follow up question about this. So this is a later chapter in your book that I found particularly interesting. And I wanted to ask you if you can tell us a little bit more about how the idea of a southern supercontinent first emerged, how it was how this notion that there was such a place, a, a, a supercontinent of the south, of the global south, how that first emerged, how it acquired the name Gondwanaland, and what it had to do with the political history and the colonial history in particular of central India.
0: It's another uh, very broad question and I'll have to, uh, I'm trying to give it as short an answer as possible. So, um, Okay, I'll start with what we know of Gondwana land now, uh, and try to in a way deconstruct that idea. So, Gondwana land is uh, the massive super southern continent um, that uh, that existed, which uh, which was formed of Australia, southern parts of India, South Africa, southern parts of uh, America, and Antarctica. Uh, that's what we know as the Gondwana land, and and it's. It's it's uh, it's the it's a southern landmass, which the idea was finally confirmed in the middle of the 20th century. Before that, um, th- there were debates about it. So that is what we know as as the Gondwana land, a land that covers the entire almost southern uh, regions of the earth. But how the uh, idea emerged? Now, the word Gondwana um, comes from an Indian region. There's actually a physical region in central India called Gondwana. Um, that Gondwana region, a word essentially means the forest of the Gonds. Vana is, uh, is forest in Hindi, and Gond are one of the largest tribal groups living in that part of Central India, in its various parts of Central India. So, from the medieval period, uh, there was a literature, uh, there were references to this region as Gondwana. So, the British had, uh, had assumed this, this term for this massive. Region, forested, deeply geological land formations region um, as a Gondwana as the Gondwana region, and they started uh, studying the landforms or land formations of this region, um, and at the same time they were studying also the tribal populations uh, of this region. Often it's with the same people because they didn't have too many uh, professional geologists in India, so they were studying these these, uh, populations, people living in that region. And one of the ideas that they developed that these were the aboriginal races of India. And simultaneously what they studied in this central India, that region that they lived, is this is one of the earliest rock formations of India. So the idea of aboriginal or earliest humans and earliest rock formations were critically mixed in this idea of the Gondwana region of India. This is still Gondwana in India we're talking about. Now, what happened in the course of 19th century, and I'm making a broad, um, simplistic overview of this, uh, geologists and ethnologists in South Africa and India and Australia started to see similar patterns among Aboriginal populations in South Africa, in the Karu region, in South Africa, in, in various parts of India, that rock formations, studies of rock formations and uh, aboriginal populations that they're living in it's the process of the naturalization of human prehistory that I talk about in the book that how these people are born of the earth almost literally form that rock. How and they use Aboriginal uh, mythologies of creation in enhancing or the filling the gaps of their geological theories. That how there is an idea of these gons have emerged from the water. So let's fit that in. So that kind of, you know, a jigsaw puzzle formation was emerging, not only in India, but in Australia and other places. What happened uh, later is Edward Suess uh, then tries to connect all these stories together. And he sees the patterns of the Glossoptoris fossil that I talked to you about before in the various uh, coal mines in India and Australia to see that there is Uh, not only this pattern of historical repetition in the various regions, this is probably a physical connection because the same fossil exists in different parts. But it is important to uh, remember at this point, and Lucas, you must tell me when I I should stop uh, because I'm going on, is the important um, process that for Edward Suez, this is not a landmass. This is not a connected landmass That emerged only in the 20th century. For Edward Suez, it is land bridges. So Edward Suez's idea of Gondwana land, if you see a map, I think there's a map that I've tried to reproduce. He never developed a map, but there is a similar map in the 1920s when that idea of land bridges was still common, which I've reproduced in the book, is the connection between South Africa, South Southern India, uh, South America through land bridges. And the, as the earth cooled and the water came up, those land bridges went, uh, yes, that, those land bridges went under the water. So what happened? That if you have land bridges, you have migration of species through those land bridges. You have human migrations. So that is playing a role in this global history of southern migration of human races across the Gondwana region. So another interesting feature that is developing in this period, that the aboriginal tribes of India have racial affinity with uh, aboriginal tribes in South Africa and Australia. So what is a geological link also becomes an anthropological link about, so, but it's only later on uh, with plate tectonics being accepted, in um, you know, Naomi Oreskes' book about accepted in 1930s and 40s that People, before that, people couldn't move, uh, believe that continents had actually moved. But actually, when uh, drift theories became accepted, that's when the idea of uh, land bridges were rejected in the favor of actual movement of plates. Uh, that's a very different project. But till the early in the 20th century, the idea of Gondwana Island existed almost as a possibility of land bridges connecting the southern continent.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. It's interesting because, of course, in North America, that idea of land bridges is still very strong. Um, And there, too, you see a very clear, similar connection made between indigenous peoples of the of North America, of the Americas in general, I guess I should say, and um, modern day sort of Asian populations, North Asian, East Asian, I guess, populations, which, again, I recently interviewed Paulette Steves on this podcast, a a really fabulous book called The Indigenous Paleolithic, where she points out all of the, very similar to what you're doing for South Asia here, she's doing for for the Americas, for Indigenous peoples in the Americas, pointing out the the racist assumptions um, that are at play in the natural, the particular narratives for naturalizing the deep history of indigenous tribes in the Americas. But there too, the land bridges play an absolutely essential role. And yeah, uh, North American indigenous tribes are often said to be of Asian origin, which is a kind of an interesting, Paulette Steve's points out that's an interesting claim to make given that Asia as a place did not exist at the time that Aboriginal peoples migrated into the what, are, what is now called the Americas. So it's a very kind of, you know, the, the naming conventions are just one indication of the deep colonial roots of the stories that you tell and that other uh, earth historians of the earth sciences are starting to tell, which is super interesting. I wanted to ask you a kind of follow-up question about Gondwanaland, which has to do, you mentioned the earth histories of the Gond people, the, the people that inhabit this region in central South Asia. And I wanted to ask you a little bit, to say a little bit more about, to describe those earth histories in a little more detail and to talk a little bit more about how those earth histories were then taken up by, British colonizers, and in particular, maybe to talk about the connections to mining extraction as well, and why it was the case that the Gond people were believed by British colonizers to be sort of, here's na- another case of naturalization, right? Naturally adept at mining, naturally adapted to mineral extraction, to laboring in mineral extraction economies. It's, it's
0: uh, you know, um, so in the 19th century, uh it's a history of the colonization of patterns of India, um, that large parts of uh, central India, which is which is known as Gondwana land, or Gondwana. Gondwana land is Edward Swiss, just to clarified. Um, Gondwana is the Indian part. Um, so large parts of what is known as central India um, were only colonized in the 19th century although Northern India was colonized at the end of the 18th century. So it's only the middle of the 19th century, the large parts of Central India, almost um, at the same time, slightly earlier, but of colonization of Africa, of Central Africa. That's why you see the patterns and and Australia. So the historical patterns are similar. And what happens with that colonization of uh, large parts of Central India, um, three distinct features. One is the discovery of... uh, by the British anthropologists of large tribal populations living in these hills, in this in this forested region of, of central India, uh, and with that, there's a discover, there's an investigation of who are these people and how are they different or similar to the existing Hindu and other other races uh, of India. So because the Indological, uh, other studies had studied the Northern Indian castes, Hindus. So who are these people? And that's where the Indian aboriginality question becomes critical, that these are the aboriginal people distinct from the Hindus. So there's this distinct ideas of race, ethnicity that becomes quite important for the Gons but other tribes around the Gons themselves. So that's the first um, point of discovery in the central India. The second is um, the discovery of minds this region and all goes hand in hand. So um, the the exploration from the mines find anthropology uh, the the uh, people living in that region. So so the the so the diamond coal mines, deep coal mines were excavated, and this is the time of the British industrialization. So huge hunger for coal uh, and coal fuel the British imperialism in this period. So that is taking place at the same time of this of this kind of you know, area that uh, that develops, and the third is this um, this idea that the so the third is the exp- of the development of uh, cotton cultivation. It's it's all very interesting. You know, co- and with the American Civil War, um, the Indian cotton becomes very important. So the expansion of cotton cultivation, the study of soil, and why the cotton soil is so rich in in central, in huge parts of central india the deccan region that i study and there's a story of how and there's a study of the soil which goes back to the origin of this region as almost this is the region where life came first that's why it is so rich because it is it is filled with life in its original form that was an idea of that region so what happens is that all of this were taking place simultaneously and so, there's, and there's a, so as the so and this simultaneity is important because it happens even today. And uh, in so, as the Aboriginal populations were discovered, they were also being replaced from their land, and that's the tragedy. As because these coal mines were being formed or these tracts were being taken over, and the agricultural expansion of the colonial state was taking place. So you are one hand one hand you are saying they're Aboriginal, on the other hand you are displacing from, the, from them from the land, and they are now becoming the mining uh, labour. In this, in these mines, and there's a part where I discuss, as you said, uh, that they were very happy to send these people in the deep coal mines. I've never been to a coal mine; I can only imagine it's one of the most scary places that one can descend into. Um, so, so the the almost the 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 way to explain to them to their conscience was: these people are going back to their earth. Because that is where they evolved from. So the naturalism of the of the people and the region and the mines and the deep in the earth became very useful when you have to recruit and justify why these are the people who go into the deep of the coal mines to extract coal. So that uh, simultaneity of mining aboriginality is something that is happening today um, in not only in India and in other places where aboriginal people are facing one of the most aggressive coal mining. Uh, processes. And so on the one hand, they are aboriginal, on the other hand, they are being displaced. So that history is repeats itself, but that started in the 19th century, in that period.
1: Yeah, and then of course, also, um, there's an environmental justice component, of course, as well, which is to do with the immense pollution and kind of environmental degradation that's often a result of those kinds of mining operations, and then particularly, you know, disproportionately affects Indigenous communities from those regions, yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about indigenous knowledge about prehistory. And in your book, you have two examples in particular where you talk about um, this question about how scientific knowledge made by geologists and indigenous knowledge about prehistory come into contact, come into conversation, come into conflict in some cases. Uh, And one, one example is the example of shallograms and the other one is turtles and giant tortoises. Uh, I wonder if you want to choose one to talk about, or maybe you can talk about both of them, whichever one you're most interested in.
0: So uh, can I digress a bit uh, to answer that question? Um, so there are uh, there are two kinds of indigenous knowledge here, which are informing geohistories in this period. One is obviously the history of uh, of turtles and shaligrams that you have referred to. The other is um, indigenous own myths of creation. Um, and uh, I, I'll carry on from the previous discussion. So, what was happening in the 19th century as um, geologists or anthropologists, or whatever you want to call them, they were basically explorers studying the geological history of the earth. They were often filling gaps with uh, indigenous myths about creation because most indigenous myths have the creation histories. So they are filling the gaps within that creation histories. And that happens in South Africa as well. Um, The sun myths were used by geologists about about art history. That is not often referred to that, you know, how art history um, or how even Gondwana Land history has incorporated indigenous myth histories but what happens with that uh, use of indigenous or ab- indigenous knowledge or aboriginal in, uh, knowledge is it's very selective they're choosing the naturalistic parts of those myths and not the theological parts of those myths so there is a selection of the naturalism within that within uh, within those histories and they that's why they appear overtly natural that it's all about nature it's all about we being people of this art being this. So, you know, so that nationalism that the uh, anthropologists were deeply seeking becomes evident in the forms of aboriginal myths that they collect and select in the story. So that's one. The other is the story of... Um, of the of shaligrams and uh, tortoises why that is different that uh, comes from a textual tradition so uh, you know the first one is comes from a more anthropological study of oral traditions that happen. but the 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 Aborig- the indigenous uh, stories about uh, tortoises or shaligrams come from an old tradition of asiatic history asiatic societies uh, study of hindu tibetan texts and the and, and, and use of those so there's a there's a textual study that becomes art or history studies. The process is um, is simple. Uh, I, I will just explain. So one of the one of the um, projects that Asiatic Society, which was established in the 1780s uh, by William Jones, you know the the kind of the pioneer uh, orientalist in India, was that he came to India to show that the Hinduism. Um, is part of the biblical um, or Abrahamic religious ideas. So what he was trying to show in that textual study of Sanskrit and other texts is the references to the flood. And so all he was studying, the indigenous texts of Puranic, you know, the Puranic is, Puranic means the old times, essentially it means old times, which is the kind of semi-historical text that existed in India, where he's studying those um, for references to the flood. And by probably no great surprise he finds them that references to the flood almost every civilization has apparently references to the flood i don't know don't ask me why i am not going into the discussion right now but he finds those references to the flood and what he finds is the lord vishnu and and puranas are the stories of lord vishnu and lord vishnu's evolutions in various forms you know that is the purana so he takes 10 avatar um, or 10 uh, incarnations to become lord Vishnu, and each is Evolving from the fish to the tortoise to various forms. And each is in each avatar or each incarnation, Lord Vishnu is saving the world from the flood. So he has also, William Jones and others in the late 18th century had already collected almost semi-geo-historical traditions from Indian uh, Puranic literature about art history and about the flood. What happens in the 19th century, the Abrahamic uh, connotations disappear. You know, it becomes a more secular perspective, but then you have traces about in the in the library about references to um, to the tortoise and to shaligrams as part of Vishnu's ring was the shaligram, you know, the, the, the fossil uh, form. And then in the 19th century, they start finding fossils Uh, they discovered that shaligram is actually an ammonite fossil. So, and they discovered, so one of the avatars was a tortoise. So, uh, uh, Hugh Falconer and uh, uh, P.B. Cowtley found this massive uh, tortoise fossil in the Himalayas, which is on the one hand, if you realize, is part of the avataric formation that references to, this is one of the avatars of tortoise, was one of of the avatars of Vishnu. On the other, you have now a fossil that is a geohistorical specimen. So then uh, Falconer goes back to read those Puranic texts, saying that these were not about Abrahamic religion, these were actually references to fossils. So Indians, and then this uh, historical imagination started, which continues today, that early Indians were early geologists. That they what they saw, so every avatar, and you can find fossils of every avatar, the fish that they were actually proto geological imaginations by Indian saints who wrote or who composed the Indian texts like the Puranas. So, so when geohistory became secular in India, it became more mythologized, if you know what I mean, because it became not mythologized, its links with mythologies became fundamentally important because through mythology you could prove that. Uh, that Puranics were not mythological texts; they were actually art history texts written uh, thousands of years back.
1: It's another instance of naturalization. Yes, yeah.
0: yes. Sorry, yeah. We keep coming back to that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it also it, it implies a kind of critique of yeah some of the work that you know folklorists. I'm thinking of Adrian Meyer, for example. Um, it, it's a really interesting um, perspective that is quite different from um, the work of uh, many other people who've who've thought about some similar kinds of issues. Um, yeah, I wanted to maybe as a last question, um, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about the Shivalik Hills. So to just tell us a little bit about this region in northern India, in the foothills, I understand it, of the Himalaya Mountains, the kinds of fossils, how, how the Shivalik Hills were first discovered, like who, well, I shouldn't say first discovered, how European naturalists first became interested in the Shivaliks and what kinds of fossils they found there, and what role That particular locality, that particularly rich locality, plays in this story about the naturalization of Earth history that you're telling.
0: So um, geographically, Siwaliks. If you imagine the Himalayan mountains, um, the Siwaliks are the southernmost uh, range uh, towards India. So it's the what is known, uh, what is the Indian sides of the Himalayas, the foothills. So that is. Uh, and the Central Himalayas are the highest peaks, and then the Tibetan um, the plateaus. So, and that uh, geographical feature is quite important because um, in the 19th century, as the British wanted to explore trading to Central Asia, they were looking for explorations through the Himalayas, and that is where. So, it's basically trading with Central Asia. Uh, for purposes of that. So they were exploring uh, the Shivaliks for very trading and commercial purposes. At the same time, the, the foothills of Himalayas and Shivaliks had featured, for various reasons, in Indian textual traditions. You know, these were, were the, the abode of the go- lords, the abode of the gods in the Himalayas, are the abodes of the god, which has appeared in, as I said, in the 18th century texts within that theological perspective. So as explorers like uh, Falconer was going into and exploring the trade routes, they were also aware of this religious importance of these mountains, but they were also doing uh, finding fossils in this. And the Siwaliks were a critical part of the Indian fossil uh, discovery. It's one of the, the largest fossil uh, sites in India. And, um, and, and one of the points I make is Alps sit quite uh, heavily and the history of geology, uh, and it's important to recognize the history of uh, of Himalayas and the Cebalces as an alternative site of fossils that changed how. The, because one of the one of the reasons for of how the plate tectonics worked was the the Indian plate hitting um, and the rise of the Himalayas, but the traces of which. Were found by Falconer in the 19th century, and there's a map that I show in the book. Is how did the Himalayas were formed? And he imagined that there was actually a water because he could find marine marine fossils in the Himal the Siwaliks and couldn't explain that. So he actually imagined that there was an actual water, in so he didn't imagine them as plate tectonics, but he imagined there was actual water where Siwaliks were, which with the sedimentation from the hills became covered and became the plains of India. So that idea of formation of Central India, the Central Indian plains, a very fertile lands that were being colonized for agricultural purposes, canals were built, the Siwaliks held a very critical part of, if you want to understand Northern India, you have to understand the Siwaliks And the fossils were critical in that imagination of the formation of Northern Indian plains. So that is why Siwaliks have remained and where, where we where became and have remained critical in the imagination of northern India, almost as central Indian, you know, Deccan region in central India, that that region, um, and as they were finding fossils, they were imagining that formation in different ways throughout the 19th and early 20th century. And just an aside of that, because that's a project that uh, I'm going to work on when I have the time, and I think that might be interesting to you personally as well, is um, Helmut Detera, the... Uh, the Yale geologist following from this logics of, because he has read this very complex histories about mythology, formations, uh, fossil formations. Uh, and this is before the plate tectonics became established. Uh, you know, in the 1920s, he led several expeditions through the Siwaliks and collected ethnographic geological specimens because he was convinced that Siwaliks is the birthplace of humans. And he he was doing this massive study about land formations, fossil formations, evolution of humans, and he actually had a theory uh, that humans evolved uh, in the Sivaliks because you know William uh, sorry Falconer said that there was actually a, a water body and there was he imagined that was a uh, the the water body around which humans evolved and they, as the mountains rose it became too cold and they migrated towards the plains of India. So that, so it, can, it kind of captures or it kind of holds together this entire imagination of Northern India as a civilizational uh, foundation of India.
1: Yeah, and therefore also connected to European history and yeah, European cultural history in fascinating ways. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing book, Pratik. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and telling us about this fabulous research that you have been doing.
0: Thank you, Lucas. Thank you.